Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on the Financial Pathway Podcast with Nate Skelly, where we discuss important financial questions and give you practical advice to guide you on your financial journey. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. You can also follow the Financial Pathway page on Facebook for more helpful financial tips and videos. Hey everybody, it's Nate Skelly and welcome back to the Financial Pathway podcast. You know, growing up, uh, history has always been my favorite subject. In fact, I taught history for some time. I really enjoy it, reading about it, watching documentaries. I've always found it fascinating. I came across a book a few years ago and I don't remember how I came across it, but the title definitely piqued my interest. It's called Lies My History Teacher Told Me. And right away, I was like, I have to check out this book. What's this all about? Basically, the premise of the book is that there are certain historical facts, quote-unquote facts, that have been passed along for generations that are very widely held beliefs. They've made their way into textbooks and into classrooms, but they're not actually true. And when we actually spend some time to dig into the evidence, what we find is, nope, that's not true. So I'll give you an example. It's in the book. Uh, when Columbus, back in 1492, discovered the New World. A lot of people believe that in Columbus's day, people thought the world was flat. And Columbus was this really ahead-of-his-time thinker that realized, no, the world is round, and if I sail west, I can get to India that way. When, in fact, the truth is, most people believed the world was round. Um, they just thought the world was much bigger. Columbus thought the world was much smaller. He thought because the world's smaller, I can get to India faster going west than going east. And of course, Columbus was wrong. So just things like that where it's where it's like, I'm not really sure where that came from or who started that rumor, but we've all at one point heard that and then just taken that as truth. And what we're going to talk about today is not historical facts, but uh, money facts, or as I call them, money myths that need to be debunked. Things that you may have heard, that you may have been told, that you may even believe that are just not so. And in fact, there's there's a lot of these. I'm gonna talk I'm I'm gonna cover seven today, but I think what I'll do is down the road I'll have some future episodes where we tackle some more money myths because there's a lot of them. And so by no means are we gonna try to cover all the ones I want to talk about today, just these seven. And we'll keep it to that for now. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's look at the first money myth. It's good to leave a balance on your credit card in order to boost your credit score. Have you heard this one before? What they tell you is don't pay your credit card off in full each month. Instead, leave a little bit on there and that's going to help your credit score go up. Now, I'm not really sure where this comes from. But a couple points on this. First of all, if you have questions about your credit score and you want to know more about what goes into your credit score, how you can help raise your score, or what is going to lower your score, check out episode number four. We did really a a basic intro to your credit score, the factors that are looked at. So go ahead and check that out if you haven't already listened to that episode. But one of the factors is going to be what they call your utilization rate. In other words, if you have a $5,000 credit limit, and you've used $1,000 that month, that looks good. That's a good utilization rate. If you've used 4,800 of your $5,000 limit, that's bad. That's not good for your score. 
What's not part of it is how much you leave over at the end of the month. So in other words, if you used $1,000 and then you decide to pay $900 and leave a $100 balance, that doesn't help your score. So don't do that. Instead, pay your credit cards off in full each month. It's much better. And here's a couple other things to consider. If you're going to leave a balance on your credit card, not only are you going to have to pay interest on the balance, but you're setting yourself up for a scenario where you might forget that you left a little balance and then a, 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 a billing cycle is going to go by and you're going to forget to pay and then you're going to get hit with a late fee and then it's going to ding your credit score. So, uh, so don't do that. That's not going to help your credit score. Don't leave a balance. Instead, pay your credit cards off in full every month. Myth number two, by having a will, you're guaranteeing that your assets will be distributed distributed exactly how it is listed in the will. Now, let me say first off, I think you should have a will. There's no reason not to, especially if you're in a situation where you've got dependents, you're married, and the more complex your financial situation is, the more imperative it is that you have a will. So, Take some time, make the investment, talk to a legal professional, get a will in place. It's well worth the money to do so. But here's what you have to understand about a will. And this is very important. If you have accounts, financial accounts that have listed beneficiaries, that supersedes your will. In other words, if you have in your will listed, my spouse gets my IRA, but on your IRA, you have listed somebody else as the beneficiary, that beneficiary takes precedence. It's going to go to the person you listed as beneficiary, not what's on your will. So be very careful about that. When you're coming up with your plan, take into account that it's not always going off of exactly what the will says. And here's the other thing I would say about having a will. Some people have this notion that, well, I'm going to leave everything to my spouse. So what's the point of creating a will? If I die, everything is going to go to them anyway. Not necessarily. It goes by the state law. And maybe if you have a business, or if you have multiple properties or trust, or if you have a complicated financial situation or a complicated family situation, it may not be that simple. And your state law might dictate otherwise. So the point is, take the time, make the investment, decide where you want your stuff to go now. Don't leave it up to the government after you've already passed. Myth number three. I don't need an emergency fund. If something happens, I can just use my credit card or my home equity line of credit, or I can borrow from my 401k, etc., etc. Here's why this is such a bad idea. First of all, I strongly advise everybody to have an emergency fund in place at least three months of your living expenses. And this is designed to protect you in an unforeseen circumstance. Your emergency fund is not for buying a car down the road. That's something you can plan for. You know eventually you're going to need a new car. Emergency fund is for those situations when all of a sudden for something that you couldn't have planned for, now you need money. The situation we're in right now with coronavirus is a perfect example. Nobody could have seen this pandemic coming and it's caused a lot of people to lose their job, to have their hours cut back, to be in a tough financial situation. That's where an emergency fund can come in place and help you in the meantime while you get things sorted out so you can make it through this and not have to be in a worse financial state. So the problem is by having this attitude, all of a sudden something unforeseen comes across, boom, I lost my job or 
we need a new roof or we need a new water heater or the car broke down or whatever the case may be, I don't have any cash on hand to pay for that. So I'm going to go into debt to then finance that and dig myself a deeper hole. You see, the time when you're most financially unstable or the most financially vulnerable is the worst time to be going into deeper debt. Don't view your credit card, your line of credit, a loan from your 401k, don't view those as your first line of defense in case of emergency. Instead, have some cash, have some readily available funds as your first line of defense. I'm not saying that you can never use those things in an emergency. Sometimes things just dictate that you have to go to extremes, but don't have the attitude that I don't need an emergency fund because I can borrow instead. That's a bad plan. Don't believe that money myth. Myth number four. Moving into the next tax bracket means I'll make less money. Here's what you have to understand about tax brackets, because this is a really common misunderstanding. Let's say somebody makes $40,000. The way our tax brackets are set up right now in 2020, if you're filing single, you start at 10%, and then anything above $9,875 moves you into the 12% tax bracket. And then anything above $40,125 moves you into the 22% tax bracket. So here's what people are are tempted to think, or here's sometimes where they they go wrong. They think, oh, if I'm making $40,000, I don't want to make any more because then I'll go from 12% to 22%. I'll have to pay 22% on all my income. That's incorrect. Instead, what happens is, you pay 10% on the first 9875 and then you pay 12% on every dollar up till 40125 And then anything above that line then gets taxed at 22%. And on and on it goes. The highest tax bracket that we have right now is 37%. So just understand, if you move into a higher tax bracket, that does not mean all of your income is being taxed at that rate just whatever is over that next line. So in the the reality is for somebody if they move from making 40,000 to 45,000, they're not paying 22% on all $45,000. They're only paying 22% on that little bit that about $5,000 over that pushes them over into the 22% tax bracket. So it's certainly desirable to avoid going into a higher tax bracket. But it's also not the end of the world, and it's certainly not meaning you're going to make less money than if you had stayed in the lower tax bracket. That is not the case. Myth number five. If I have more money, it means I will be happier. This is one that you probably won't hear too many people say, but a lot of people believe it deep down. You know, Jesus said in the book of Luke, he said that you have to beware of covetousness. Because life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is not all about what you have in the bank or in the 401k or how much your house is worth. That's not what life is about. Instead, we've got to guard ourselves from having the mentality that if I just had what somebody else had, that would make me happy. In Hebrews, uh, we read that you need to be aware of covetousness and also... You need to be content with what you have. You see, happiness does not come from possessions. Happiness does not come from 
a certain lifestyle. Now, we know this from a Christian worldview. We know this biblically. The Bible certainly teaches that wealth does not guarantee success or happiness or fulfillment. But we can also look at secular examples. I mean, we can look at anecdotal evidence. I mean, how many people do we have to hear of that are famous, that are rich, that are powerful, that lead absolutely miserable lives, that are the exact opposite of happy? We can look at studies that are done that show the correlation between wealth and higher rates of stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Here's what I'm saying. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that if I just made a little bit more money, if I got that promotion, if I got that raise, if I could move to that neighborhood, if I drove that car, then my life would be better and I would be happier and I would be more fulfilled. The reality is that that's just not true. It doesn't work that way. As human beings, we're wired to always want a little bit more. So instead, we need to take the advice that the Bible gives us and learn to be content, learn to be happy in the stage that we're at, and instead view money, view our finances as a tool to help us to achieve the things that truly matter in life and not treat them as an end in and of themselves. Myth number six. Rich people have high incomes, live in big houses, and drive fancy cars. If I asked you to imagine, picture in your mind a rich person, what comes to mind? For me and for most people, you picture somebody that makes six or seven figures. They live in this beautiful mansion. They've got a Lamborghini in the driveway. They're right on the beach and they've got a yacht docked right there. We picture this life of luxury, this, this, this amazing life of material wealth. But the funny thing is that for most people in our country that would be considered wealthy, that's a far cry from how they live. Thomas Stanley is an author. He wrote a very famous book called The Millionaire Next Door back in the 90s. And then he wrote a follow-up book a few years later called The Millionaire Mind. Thomas Stanley spent a lot of his time studying the wealthy in our country and really just trying to understand what made them tick, how they became wealthy, and what separated them from folks who were not wealthy. What was it that set them apart? And so he did a lot of studying, a lot of research, really interesting things. I want to point out a couple things that he found as part of his research that was very interesting to me. First of all, he found that most millionaires live in very modest houses. Uh, he found that there were three times as many millionaires that lived in houses that were $300,000 or less than millionaires that lived in houses that were a million dollars or more. In other words, there's a lot more millionaires living in very, you know, middle-class type neighborhoods and houses, ones that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that person has to be rich to live in a house like that. He also found that the most popular model of car for millionaires was a Toyota. So certainly not the brand that's associated with luxury and, uh, and wealth. Very dependable car, very good car, but certainly not a luxury car. In fact, he found that the majority of people that drove luxury cars like BMW, Jaguar, Lexus, etc. were not millionaires. Instead, they were people that had a high income, but were also high spenders. You see, what happens is he discovered there's really two types of people. 
There's the people who appear rich on the surface because they have the name brand clothing and jewelry and nice cars and a big house, but their net worth is pretty minimal because whatever comes in, they're immediately spending and they're spending not on things that bring in income, not on assets, but on depreciating goods, things that are nice to have, but go down in value. On the other hand, those that are truly wealthy, most of the times they're not spending their money on the name brand clothing, on jewelry. They're not buying vacation homes. They're not buying uh, jet skis and yachts and BMWs. And they're living a very frugal life. And really what set apart the truly wealthy from his research was really two things. Number one, those who are truly wealthy, and, and by the way, millionaire is kind of that arbitrary line that was used because in, in, in American American mentality, million dollars for whatever reason is kind of the figure that we've we've focused in on as being wealthy. When you have a million dollars, that makes you wealthy. Okay, uh, it's arbitrary, but I guess that's that's a that's a as good of a, a line in the sand as any. But basically, what set apart the truly wealthy was that they number one lived well below their means. So whatever their income was, they found ways to make sure that their lifestyle and their spending fell way below that and they could save a significant amount of money. And number two, they rarely spent money on large purchases. They were not impulsive. They were not, it's not, it was not important in the, for the most part, in most cases, for them to buy things that gave them quote unquote status or symbols of their wealth Instead, they were much more sensible with their purchases. Also, it should be noted that most millionaires that he studied, uh, that, that he, as part of the research, what he found is that most millionaires were self-made millionaires. A lot of them were first-generation millionaires. They didn't come from wealth. They didn't inherit it. Instead, they became wealthy through their own discipline, hard work, and patience. Myth number seven, last one we'll cover for today. I need to wait until I have money to start investing. Growing up, baseball was my favorite sport from the time I was little. Loved playing wiffle ball in the backyard, playing catch with my dad. But I didn't start playing organized baseball, Little League, until I was nine. And I remember as a nine-year-old, I had this, I had this, this, this image in my head that when I went to go play baseball, I went to Little League, that all of these kids were going to be so advanced and so much better than me. And I was going to be just, you know, the kid who is way, way behind everybody else. And I was really intimidated going to my first practice. And, and what I found is that it wasn't true at all. There were kids that had been playing baseball for a while that were good. There were kids that were just starting and they knew nothing. And I was somewhere in between and it was fine. And I learned. In some ways, I feel like that same intimidation applies to those who are just trying to get their trying to get started with investing. They feel intimidated for one of two reasons, or, or maybe both. Number one, they feel intimidated by the amount of money. They feel like, I need a certain amount of money to really be taken seriously or to make a difference. And that might they might think it's $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, but they have in their, their mind some sort of barrier that I, I can't invest until I have X amount of dollars. Or... They may feel that I can't start investing until I know enough to be confident about investing because I don't want to do something wrong and mess up and lose money. 
And this intimidation keeps a lot of people on the sidelines who would like to begin to start doing something, but they don't know where to start. And so here's what I would say to you if you fall into that boat, if, if, if that's the money myth that you've come to believe. First of all, understand that time is one of your most valuable assets. Get time on your side. Don't wait. Instead, begin right now. Even if you don't have a lot of money, that's okay. Even if you can put aside $25 a month or 2% of your paycheck, great. Do it because you're going to begin that snowball effect. You're going to begin the process of compound interest and you'll be a whole lot better off for it in the long run. So take the first step. Now, the first step might be different for each person. So maybe the first step for you is you need to participate in your employer's 401k plan, especially if your employer offers a match. If they match, say, 3%, that means you take 3% of your paycheck, put it in your 401k, your employer is going to match that amount. You're going to double your money right away. That is the best deal going. You need to take advantage of that. Maybe you need to fund an IRA. There's a lot of different sites and apps out there now that allow us to invest with little to no cost. So the barriers are just really broken down. It is more accessible than ever. And what I would say is if you're intimidated by the process and you don't understand investing very well, that's where you need to work with somebody who's a financial advisor that you know and you can trust. And so if you're in that boat and you're like, hey, I need some help, then reach out to me. Let me know. I would love to help you in that process, give you advice, point you in the right direction. But regardless of who it is that you reach out to, make sure that you get the right information and the right person to work with that's going to help you on that journey and it's going to be that so much so much more helpful to you in the long run. Don't wait. Don't don't fall into this trap of thinking, "Well, I need a lot of money in order to start investing." No, you don't. You can get started right now. It's very simple. You just need to go ahead and take that first step. So that's all that's going to do it for our first money myths episode. Uh, which of those myths have you heard before? Which of those myths have you believed before? Remember, money myths, it's like things you read on the internet. Never assume that it's true. Do your research. Do your homework before uh, automatically believing it. And before we go, please take a moment. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating, a review. We would really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll do a part two or maybe even a part three somewhere down the road and tackle some more money myths. Hope you have a great day and I will see you on the next episode.